1 Thessalonians 5, shall we? We're in the middle of this uh, final stretch in Paul's letter where he is teaching us what relationships look like in a local church family. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how what relationships between church members and their leaders ought to look like. Uh, last week and tonight, we've been looking at how um, members relate to each other. What does life in a local church family actually look like? And if you were here last week, I walked us through three of the five things that church members do for each other, um, simply according to what Paul highlights in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. And this week, I want to talk about the remaining two, uh, patience and kindness. So let's bow our heads and pray for God's help before we read God's words. Father, you have shown us in your words that the gathered church family devoted to preaching and hearing your word is crucial to our faith and it's building up and our witness to the world. Please work powerfully in us just now to help us understand what you're teaching us here. Help us know how to apply it. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, read from verse 14, read 14 and 15. Uh, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Amen. This is God's word. So we've been looking at five things that church members do. When they commit to the kind of fellowship that God looks for in his people, not the kind of fellowship that we might associate with that word, it tends to have been neutered of its importance, really. It's, it's not just a chat around a cup of tea and some digestive biscuits. It's an all-in commitment to each other, sharing life together. That is God's plan for his local church. According to verse 14 that we already looked at last week, the demonstration of that commitment takes place when we warn idle members. We actually admonish each other. When we encourage faint-hearted members, when we get alongside the small souls who are fragile in their faith and easily discouraged to help them and encourage them on. And we help weak mem members, those who struggle in particular, in periods, not just over long time, but in periods, as we all do, with sin and temptation. Remember we taught last week that we gather around to hold them up by teaching clearly and offering healthy, loving, pastoral care. But the other two things that we're to do that we're going to look at tonight is to be patient with each other and be kind to each other. Be patient with each other is point number one, and this is, we get that from verse 14. Be patient with everyone. Whenever you read something like that, you've always got to ask the question, why is Paul saying this? Read the text in context. Try and figure out exactly what situation is he trying to address? Why is this particular instruction, of all the instructions he could give, important for the Thessalonian church at this time? Why call for patience? Well, it could be that he's addressing actual impatience in the church family. We know from chapter 2 that what Paul did after he was, had, was forced to leave Thessalonica was he, that he sent back his co-worker, Timothy, to go and find out how they were doing. 
He was going to measure the health and strength of this local church family because he was anxious that persecution might well have snuffed them out or caused them to regress. But Timothy comes to Paul and says, wow, Paul, these guys are doing wonderfully well. But we know that he's also come back saying, here are a few areas where they are weak. Here are a few areas that they ought to work on. Here are a few areas of church life where it seems like the gospel has not quite pervaded all of life as it ought to. Could be that they were impatient with each other. It could also be that he's just anticipating impatience being a problem. Given that he's already talked about the scenarios that he's mentioned in verse 14 and that we looked at last week. Because last week I pointed out that some of the members of the Thessalonian church were struggling with idleness, faint-heartedness, weakness. And then Paul calls on the whole church family, not just the leaders, to warn, encourage, and help. Now that warning and encouraging and helping, we can't be deceived into thinking that that's just going to be a kind of single dose application of those things. It takes time to help the idol to see how laziness and selfish sponging is unloving. It takes time to communicate that. It takes a large number of encouragements, really, before those who are fragile in their faith learn to keep their eyes on God and find their faith to be strengthened and where they're making progress in that. And it requires regular input to help the weak overcome sin and temptation that they struggle with. But whatever the reason, what we see from this simple instruction is that impatience has no place in the life of a local church family. And that's a challenging thing to hear. Do you get impatient with people in our church family? Who do you get impatient with? What kind of people do you get impatient with? Do you get impatient with the types that are mentioned in verse 14? Maybe because they're just not getting this discipleship thing quickly enough. I've already told them what they need to do to fight off this sin and this temptation. They're just not quick changing quickly enough. If we find ourselves even thinking those things, never mind saying those things, it could be that our expectations are unreasonable and our attitude unloving. Because there is no quick fix when it comes to discipleship. You can't say to a faint-hearted and fragile person on Monday, stop it and hope that on Tuesday they're going to be full-hearted. Sure, the Lord gives us microwave moments in our discipleship where people make great progress in a short time. But discipleship is much more like a slow cooker. It takes time. But whatever the reason here, we need to see impatience for what it actually is. It's not just a little foible. It's not just what Jerry Bridges in one of his books might call a, a respectable sin, one that we can get away with. We need to deal with it, to excise it, to cut it out. Do you know what impatience is? Impatience is unloving anger. Uh, impatience is anger's silent seethe. That should be obvious to us by the way our impatience shows itself. I don't know if you've noticed this, but our impatience shows itself and manifests in physical ways. It shows itself in much the same way that anger shows itself, actually. Now, I don't know what really makes you particularly impatient. Let me step back from the discipleship issue just now and just talk about impatience in general. What makes you impatient? 
Uh, I get impatient when it comes to traveling. Um, I, I'm impatient with everybody in the world when I need to be somewhere and getting there is just taking far too long. Uh, I can't wait for a teleport to be invented, but, um, but let me give you an insight into my impatience. I was on the bus the other morning uh, with a busy day ahead, and I was wanting to get into the office as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And I was on the number 41 bus, not a good start. Now, I found myself, I found myself, this is terrible, right? This is confession time. Uh, don't judge me too much. Um, help the week, remember, we saw that last week. Um, uh, I was on the bus, and I, I found myself, I noticed that I sighed every time the bus stopped at a bus stop, which is silly, given that that is what buses actually frequently do. Um, on the journey in, I was at Stuart's Melville, and the bus stopped and sat there for a, about a minute. Nobody got on, and nobody got off. It just sat there. Now, I found this intensely irritating and could start to feel a little pulse in my neck. <laughs> now, quite clearly, what was happening was the driver was just keeping himself to timetable, as buses often do, you know, just in case there's someone a minute down the road who's going to miss that bus. That was a considerate thing to do. Even though they're every seven minutes and there'd be one that would come along pretty quickly, but never mind. Anyway, <laughs> here's my heart. Look how sinful it is, is what I, right. Okay, then, then, okay, uh, after, after the bus set off again from Stuart's Melville, it got along, you know, a few hundred yards, stopped at Dean Bridge, but the bus didn't move. It wasn't keeping the timetable. It wasn't even keeping the engine ticking over. It had actually broken down. The lights were going on and off. And the driver kept trying to restart the engine. It was obvious it wasn't going to go anywhere. And as well as feeling my heart rate increase, there was this, all of a sudden I realized, the horizon is moving. No, it's not. I'm actually outwardly shaking my head at the fact that this bus has broken down. It was a moment, actually a few moments strung together, of absolute ridiculousness. What do you think I did in those moments? What do you think I did when I realized that the bus wasn't going to move? Did I sit there and pray? Did I offer to get out and push? <laughs> no, I slumped my bag on my back and stomped off like some impetuous little brat. It was ridiculous behavior. I have sought forgiveness. Now, in my impatience, replay the scenario, right? And notice again how impatience shows itself. Because I, I get that the reason why you're laughing is actually because you're like, ha, I do that when someone else is being late or when this particular situation or when that guy's playing out a tune or whatever. All sorts of things. Impatience is easily identified in us, in our bodies, in the way we, and it's easily felt in our emotions. It should be easy to recognize. But we recognize knowing that it's heart, this impatience is fundamentally a heart issue. You're not applying the gospel to everyday life and everyday scenarios, and that affects us. So the sigh, the head shaking, that palpable pulse in my neck, all signs in that moment that I am not trusting in God's sovereignty, that I am not loving other people, and that I am thinking that everything in the world should revolve around my needs, my expectations, my wants. Do you ever do anything like that? Now, we get impatient with each other in a local church family in much the same way. 
Uh, I've seen it. I do it. I've been on the receiving end of it. Not only with idle, weak, and disheartened people, the people that Paul is specifically mentioning in the Thessalonian church, but with the late, the talkative one in growth group, the prideful person who can't stop turning the conversation around to themselves, the one who never says sorry, the one who just takes too long to get a task done, the one you need to explain something to for the umpteenth time, even though it just seems so simple to you, impatience arises, the sighs, the head shaking, the being short with them, distancing yourself from them, all signs in that moment that we are not trusting in God's sovereignty, not loving each other as we ought, and thinking that everything in the world should revolve around our needs, our wants, and our expectations. And it's wrong. It's anti-gospel. It goes against the grain of what God designs for his local church. It creates distance between the members of a church. Now that's problematic for growth because we need each other, as Alison was talking about earlier on, discipling one another in close quarters discipleship so that we're helping each other change. You don't change unless you're in those kind of relationships. It's just the way God has designed the church. So if, it's, if impatience is creating distance within a church family, that's not a small thing. That is a big thing. And what's worse, it creates a distorted picture of God to those outside the church. Our impatience demonstrates an unloving attitude within the congregation, not loving. And that's problematic for mission. And mission is no small thing. It is the biggest thing. People are lost and going to hell. So this is why Paul calls in the whole church family here, and he does call in the whole church family again, to be patient with each other. So what we ought to see, even from these little words, this short sentence, is that one of the most helpful things we can do for each other is to point out each other's impatience in church life and lovingly and long-sufferingly help each other change. Let's root this thing out. Patience, of course, is a virtue in God's eyes, a characteristic characteristic of godliness that ought to be prayed for and pursued. Paul talks about it an awful lot in his writings. In 1 Timothy 1.17, you can hear Paul's amazement at his own experience of being on the receiving end of God's wonderful patience. He said, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his unlimited patience as an example for all who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul is talking about what love is, love is patient is the first thing on paper. In Galatians, he lists, he lists patience as part of the fruit of the Spirit, the character traits typically found in those who claim to belong to Christ. And a similar word that you'll find not just in the new, in Paul's writings, but throughout the whole Bible is the word forbearance. It means to long suffer people, to hang in there with people over the long haul, even if it's hard and even if it's hurtful. Even if they are outwardly and openly offensive towards you. And this is a key word that describes God's relation with his people throughout the scriptures. Forbearance. 
patience, long-suffering people like me, people like you in our sin. So let's ask God to help us disciple one another lovingly over the long haul. And may the only impatience and intolerance that we feel be towards those kind of unreasonable expectations and unloving attitudes towards each other. Then we'll love each other deeply as we ought to. Then people out there will see our love for each other and say, I want a piece of that. That's different. You don't get that in any other community in this world. Second thing, not just be patient with each other. Fifth thing, actually, uh, be kind to each other. Look with me again at verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now again, it's important to ask, why does Paul make this particular appeal? Why does he want this church family to be kind to each other? Actually, by the sounds of things, no matter what comes at them. Well, he might have been addressing hurt within the church family, hurt that they were actually experiencing. He might be talking about persecution from people outside the church, though. Now, we know that that was a very real issue for them. Physically, uh, people were being beaten. Paul talks in uh, chapter 2 of this letter, if you recall, of people experiencing the same things that he experienced and indeed believers everywhere are experiencing persecution. So physically being beaten, socially being given the cold shoulder by neighbors, by market sellers. So actually earning a living by trade or feeding your family was a struggle. The Thessalonians were being wronged and mistreated by others then we know in these ways, but maybe more. How do you feel when you're wronged? How do you feel when people go out of their way to deliberately hurt you? That's what's happening. How do you feel even if people wrong you and it doesn't actually seem that deliberate? It's painful, right? We do not enjoy it. It's hard to deal with. Maybe somebody has said something about you in the past or did something to offend you. Again, think about how you respond in those kind of situations. How do you respond? What does your, what does your body physically tell you? Much in the same way as patience. The impatience is disclosed in physical ways and in emotional ways and in your thoughts. What are you thinking in those moments? What kind of emotions does this stir up in you? It's okay to feel something is wrong and I'm not happy about it, okay? That's the starting point, really, for what we would call righteous anger, but it very quickly descends into unrighteous anger if we take it forward in ways that are ungodly. So what did, how did you feel when someone wronged you? What did it make you think about doing? Did you want to retaliate? Have you ever wanted payback? It really does feel like the right thing to do at times, doesn't it? Like, and it's natural. Um, I was lifting my son off the sofa. Uh, he was bouncing on it. He shouldn't be bouncing on it. And uh, I lifted him off, and I accidentally knocked his wee foot on one of our wee uh, uh, tables in the living room. Now, what was the first thing that he did? Bump right onto my knee. You know, his, he was like, you hurt me, I'm hurting you back. Okay? It's part of our nature. 
I think, anyway, either that or he just doesn't like me very much, but um, someone punches you, you punch them back. Someone curses, I'm not giving you instructions, I'm saying this is what we do. Someone curses you, you want to curse them back. Uh, somebody bad mouths you at work, you know, you want to get them back in some way because this is just not fair. Something's not right, I'm not happy about it. Somebody wants to make your life a misery, yeah, let's figure out how we can just even silently and more cunningly make their life a misery in return. I shouldn't be smiling. It's a sinister thing. It kind of feels like we're meeting out justice though, doesn't it? It feels right. Returning some kind of equilibrium by dealing with the unfairness that we've been put through. But what Paul is saying here is massively countercultural, but very godly. Whatever the scenario we've experienced, one thing is clear for the Christian, payback is not right. It's not the right thing to do. And one of the key indicators that shows us that it's actually quite a hard thing not to want to get somebody back is that Paul commands the entire church to make sure that nobody is going to pay anyone else back. You see that? So he's not just saying, you guys who are wronged, don't get payback. He's saying, church family, listen, you know, even if there was just three or four people here in the middle who had been wronged and were really tempted to get payback, he'd be saying to everybody else, listen, everybody, we've all got to get around these folks here to make sure that they don't pay back wrong for wrong. Make sure, whole church family, nobody pays it back. Why? To do so would be sinful, Payback is quite simply disobedience to the teaching of Christ who taught us simply what to, well, he ex taught us to expect that people would do wrong to us. That we'd be on the receiving end of real hurt from people. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to, the, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. So we've not to get payback we're to love back. I've shared before that my father's an alcoholic. And when I became a Christian, by far the hardest thing that I had to do was forgive my dad for the way he acted toward me and my family. It was crushingly hard. If ever there was a man that I wanted payback for, it was him. I used to, as a youngster, fantasize about the way that I would do that. Before I came to know the Lord and to understand his love toward me when I was his enemy, I wanted to act as an enemy acts. And it was wrong. 
it would have been wrong in the eyes of the law, never mind the eyes of the Lord. And yet, it took time. Three or four years after I became a Christian, I heard the news through my brother that my dad had been viciously beaten up. And in that moment, I was so shocked at my response. I really expected me to say, good. But I found myself saying, oh no. I went to visit him and he was thoroughly confused and very unwell. It was hard sitting at his bedside as he obviously in his mind starting to connect that I was there, which I think must have been an absolute surprise to him. But to hear him in his confusion say, oh, I saw Liam the other day. When really his brain was just seemingly trying to compute the fact that I was there. Over time, and in those moments by his bedside, especially at that time, um, I recognized what it meant to not get payback and to love those who have hurt you. And to recognize that as someone who recognizes just how filthy and obtuse I had been before the Lord God Almighty, sinful in a million different ways where I was his enemy, butting against him, rebelling against his authority, defying his words, I realized I do not have a leg to stand on for self-righteousness in this moment, even with the man who has hurt me most in my entire life. So I prayed for God's forgiveness for me first. And I told him that I forgave him. And I've resolved since to love him as if he had been the best father I had ever, ever had. Now, I don't want you to think, oh, that's wonderful. Like, you know, like for me, praise God for that. It's supernatural strength. It's supernatural input from him. I'm not able to muster that kind of thing. I'm a weak and a frail and a fragile man. You should be helping me and holding me up. But I say that to help us realize together that payback is wrong, love back is right. And God enables to do these things and, has, and opens up a world of opportunities for us. I've shared the gospel with my dad a million times now. He's been able to listen and understand he has not yet professed faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But I realized in those moments that I'm not the avenger. You know, even if, even if my love was refused and rebuffed, it still would not have justified me being an avenger. The Bible teaches us that actually one of the things that helps us love back those who are our enemies, even if they do not receive it, is the fact that God is the one who deals with sin. He, in his sovereignty, is the one who is the avenger, if you like. You know, we need to realize this, that a person's sin 
whether you're a believer or a non-believer, never goes unnoticed. It's always dealt with. It will always come under God's judgment. And what we know from the scriptures is that it's either punished on the day when all is brought to light at the end, when Christ returns and he is the judge, or it's punished already in the death of his son, which is true for all, the, all of us who believe in him already. But this punishment, meeting out this equilibrium, whatever you want to call it, is never our job. It is mine to avenge, declares the Lord. I will repay. No, we follow instead the example of Christ. That's what helps us. And 1 Peter talks about this in chapter 2 when it says, he says of Christ, when they hurled their insults at him, you know, throughout his life, but especially in those closing moments of carrying his cross, of standing before men being beaten and mocked, going to his cross, hanging there, hearing the mockery and the jeering of crowds. He saved others, let him save himself. Son of God, I write. Peter says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In other words, follow his example and realize that the cross is the thing that enables you to act as he has acted. Because by believing in him, you are given his spirit to walk in his ways and follow his example. So, brothers and sisters, when Paul talks about this, as he applies this need for patience, not wronging uh, for kindness, not, not paying back wrong for wrong, but doing good to everyone, to all who believe, he's helping us see that one of the most helpful things that we can do for each other as an expression of our church membership is to be ready to encourage one another to return good for evil. That's what Paul says in verse 15, always strive to do, always, always, in every and any situation, strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. So the best thing that we can do to those who hurt us or upset us or offend us is to be kind to them. It's to look for ways of bringing them the greatest, bringing the greatest happiness to the people who've brought us the greatest unhappiness. It's so counterintuitive. It takes time to do these things, especially if you're sitting here and you have been wronged in seriously profane and horrible ways. It is in your weakness, it is not beyond you to receive the strength of God to do these things. It's so counterintuitive, but it's also, when we do it, it's what puts the gospel on display for all to see. And it puts on display the character of God. The character of God that people ought to see as they look at us, as we live out our daily lives before them. Not as individuals, I'm talking about collectively, in life together. We show kindness, and through it, God shows his kindness. And God's kindness, according to Romans 2.5, is the kindness that leads sinners to repentance. 
we realize that God in his kindness has moved towards those who were his enemies in their unbelief and showed them kindness through doing the greatest good to them. He sent his son. Listen to this, friend, if you're not a Christian. He has shown his kindness to you by sending his son into this world to suffer an horrific death and spiritual separation from the father on the cross. He sent his son to die for all the hurts and all the offense that they had caused him because God is love and God is kind. Wonderfully, gloriously, unerringly, perfectly kind and good. Surely there are no better times when we commend the kindness of God than when we're turning good for someone's hurt. So let's be good. Let's do good to one another in the church family. Put off the impatience. Put off the selfishness that causes, not necessarily even that causes unkindness, but just the kind of selfishness that causes us to keep our hands in our pockets and our bottoms on our sofas and our money in our pockets instead of actually putting these hands, these bodies, our money, our time, our effort to work in doing good to brothers and sisters in a way that commends God's kindness. And this rebukes our selfishness. Be kind to everyone in the church and demonstrate it. Paul says in another letter, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. So laziness is still an issue, constantly an issue. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all peoples, that's everybody, everywhere, as best we can, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So do, do good to all people everywhere, well, it's not like telling you to go out and just start blessing every single person in the entire world. Simply work with those around you where you identify a need. When you, having prayed for a heart of love for the lost around you who in their predicament are in a terrible situation under God's wrath, might show them something of his kindness you're here tonight you're not a Christian have you noticed this about the person who brought you have you noticed this about maybe you're starting to come along to Charlotte Chapel a wee bit and you start to identify some folks that you connect with and so on you notice their kindness as they relate to you in their welcome and inquire about you they're not being nosy they're being loving they're seeking to find out how you're doing, and it's an act of kindness on their part. They're not just being polite. Notice the kindness that God is showing you through them, and don't downplay it. Let that kindness lead you to see your sin for what it is, to see that you are outside of this thing called a church family and because you do not have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But don't let that be a barrier to you. Instead, see, deal with that sin that keeps you from it. Deal with that lack of faith that keeps you from being a part of it and a part of God's family worldwide. Repentance, it said earlier on. Turning from sin 
turning in faith to receive all of God's promises, forgiveness of sin, eternal life. Sins blotted out, removed from you as far as east is from the west. That's how far he'll remove your sins from you if you turn to him in faith tonight. Do that. If you don't know how to do that, come and speak to the prayer team here. Speak to the person who brought you. Speak to me at the door. I'll be around for about 10, 15 minutes afterwards at the door and, or in here afterwards. Love to chat to you about that. Have someone explain this to you. It's too good to miss. Trust me, I know I've been on the other side of it. But brothers and sisters, what we all need to do in this is recognize God's plan for fellowship in the life of his church. It is a big commitment and it's a worthy commitment. As we seek to be kind to each other and so commend the kindness of God to others, let's ask God to help each other not to return good for evil. Let's look forward to the impact that our goodness and our kindness might have on those who don't know him. Well, over the last two weeks in closing, I would say God has reminded us of the ways that we ought to relate to each other as a church family. Our vision for life together at Charlotte Chapel is not arm's length relationship, but close quarters discipleship. God has given us each other, not just for company, not just to chase away loneliness, but to be to each other an indispensable means of grace. God blesses you through the blessing of belonging, okay? It's a means of grace. And we are, in each other's lives, vital tools in the good work that God has begun in us and will one day bring to completion when Christ returns. So how can we develop this fellowship? There's so much to commend. Trust me, as I've prepared these messages over the last couple of weeks, my heart has been so encouraged as I've visited people, knowing that people have already gone before me to visit some of those folks. I am greatly encouraged but how can we take this care, this, case, this patience, this love, this goodness up a level and so shine brighter the love of God to this city? Well, I mentioned you might not be a Christian. The first step is to explore the gospel. Some of you are Christians, but not members. You missed a membership class today, uh, but fill out a form at the info point and sign up next time. It's a vital way of belonging to a local church family. And we'll happily be running another one soon. And some of us who are members but keep each other at arm's length, well, let's be what Christ has called his body to be. That's a challenge for us. A compelling community of people who love him and love each other more and more and more. Because he's great. And his church is key to his plans. Let's pray.